Is it a rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. to be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, signed for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yeah. And freelance writer and critic for Rotten Nehru. Yay! The diff- def- there's the contrasts we look for in Film Fight Club. <laughs> well, Yay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are Film Fight Club. We want we like difference. And then, yeah, because we've been merging into the same person, Chris. Over time, yeah. So I feel like need to bring back the differences. You might not realize how much we've been merging into the same person if you didn't hear last week's episode because of the technical shenanigans surrounding it. Yeah, I'm sitting on the side of the desk and it's, I'm basically watching Persona. But for those who didn't hear it, uh, yeah, we, well, no, I guess most people yeah, didn't hear it. That was a highbrow reference. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, um, Yeah, we didn't quite go live properly last week. The show is on the 2SCR site and on iTunes and podcasts everywhere. Uh, we just had some ish- technical issues with the new desks, but the new desks we now have figured and they are beautiful and lovely and they're actually it's actually much easier to use and just nicer and great and on the plus side you get to hear like an hour plus yeah like an extended two hours two hours yeah we two hours hours, 28 seconds when we tried to go live it didn't work eventually we just put on the last episode that was uploaded to the server which was two weeks old halfway through (laughs) the falkland islands have just been invaded (laughs) yeah so we uh, yeah yeah film fight club takes you sometimes forward in time in our uh (laughs) when there's technical things go wrong and sometimes back in time in our retrospective episodes but yeah we use that as an excuse to go two full hours in an episode where we recounted our personal top tens of the year, as well as creating a joint Film Fight Club top six. So if you're interested in uh, what we thought of, uh, this is a perfect opportunity for us to plug the podcast. Yes, do subscribe. You can find it in all the places been, that you find quality I, podcasts. I've been actually, a lot of people have been asking me that it's on Spotify, so it's actually a lot easier to listen it to. It is on Spotify, yes, yes, right. So, you know, uh, apparently... People are listening to us on Spotify. So there you go, young people, young kids. Spotify, I like you. I was listening to today. I was just walking around. and yeah, it felt, no, Especially it felt the two-hour episode because everyone wanted to know our top tens. Yeah, yeah. We had, we had fun with that one. I'm curious as to what will be in our top and bottom tens this year. We're reviewing a film this week, which I think maybe not in those lists, but close to one of those ends. I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking about, Glenn, because I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, talk- but Chris and I seem to be merging into the same person. So it feels like we, the we same don't need to do a different number top ten, tens number, anyway. and Number nine and number one and number two on our top ten lists. So I guess like we don't need to do different movies. It just feels like we can just see one movie once, and that's okay. I'm taking odds now on uh, Endgame being in the one of those lists for Chris. I'm going to say the odds are near nil. I thought I thought Avengers: Infinity War was pretty good, but it didn't crack my top twenty of the year. Yeah, um, the one the one film that did that's a superhero film was Spider Man. So into the Spider Verse. Into the Spider Verse. Yeah, the the actual you know animated superhero film, not the live-action superhero films. The good one. The yeah, good one, that's good right. One. Yeah. You know, the good one. People have been talking about Shazam coming out this week, but I have no interest. Maybe We, we had the opportunity fatigue. to review Shazam, and we decided not to, so let's give ourselves <laughs> a pat on the back. Yes, we're reviewing Destroyer instead. But that's the thing the is, like, everyone seems to have seen Shazam internationally, seems to be loving it, so... You mean Captain m- Marvel? <laughs> yeah, Shazam is, is uh, the original Captain Marvel. And because I love Zachary Levy, I, I used to love Chuck, one of my favorite TV shows. Yeah. It used to be one of my guilty pleasures, the spy kind of you know campy spy show. So it seems he seemed to have brought that kind of uh, you know 
vibe to it. So maybe we'll be talking about it in a subsequent week. However, this week, we'll, in addition to Destroyer, we'll also be talking about Agnes Varda, who passed away this week. At the ripe old age of 90. Yes. Yeah. It just seems like she was just always there, and now I'm just surprised that she is not. Yeah, very much so. We'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, but one thing we want to touch on before we get into that is the 2SCR survey, which is happening, which is open today. Uh, basically, 2SCR want to know a little bit more about your audience and improve things for the future. So please do go online. It's 2SCR.com slash survey. And just, um, you know, it opens today, goes till March, May 1st. And yeah, we just want to get improve everything for the future. So hop on there. And yeah, there's links on our social media on the front page of the 2SCR site. But for now, we are talking about Destroy It, the new film from Karen Gassama, the director of The Invitation, which we actually talked about last week, too. This is starring Nicole Kidman and Sebastian Stan. It is set contemporaneously. Nicole Kidman is a, de- a detective who has uh, clearly not having the greatest week and in the first case of the day comes upon a body and events spiral and escalate from there, bringing into focus events that happened in her very harrowing events, which are totally teased out throughout the film, which happened in her life 17 years ago. It also stars Toby Cabell in a small role. This, I don't think, will make my bottom 10 of the year. It is certainly one of my least favorite of the year thus far. This is a film that sets itself up as a noir, as a near noir, but I don't think I can recall a more inconsistent approach. <coughs> just shooting a noir. Parts of it are incredibly bright and light, parts look like, like a Nicholas Winding Refn film, and parts that look like it was shot uh, by the, you know, Wachowskis, like they tried to redo The Matrix or something. It was wholly inconsistent. Um, it was a character-driven film in part, but also a plot-driven film which had uh, very lax in terms of plotting. Usually you're supposed to be able to infer this or discover this, but this film, it was very much leaving breadcrumbs instead of allowing you to piece together pieces of the puzzle. Um, there were a couple of uh, more forgiving scenes that I enjoyed, one I'll get into later with Toby Cabell, but for the most part, I found this quite a cumbersome watch. Yeah. Um, I'd Actually, let's hear it from Farad, because I, I think I have nothing to say that would differ too much from what Glenn feels about this. I want to bring the fight back to Film Fight yeah, this, Club. This looks like an actual... Yes, we're fighting. Because... <laughs> I don't know, Glenn. What what film did you end up seeing? Because I didn't see that film. You didn't see Dumbo, did you? Because that would have been <laughs> this would have been very awkward then. No. <laughs> I wish, because you know I really liked Tim Burton, and he seems to have lost the plot. I saw this film less as a noir film, as more as a character study, actually. But I can see why, Glenn, you would see this film as more as noir, because it's using a lot of those narrative tropes and a lot of that kind of trickery to convince you it's noir, but I don't think it is. It's mostly a gritty character study grounded in Nicole Kidman's character, and it's really that character's journey and the honesty around and conversation around grief and what character has gone through, rather than a, a, you know, a thriller, kind of a noir mystery thriller, which it is using a lot of those tropes, but I don't think it is actually that kind of a film. All right, I agree with Virat that it's way more of a character study, and it's way more interested in getting into the nitty-gritty of Nicole Kidman's character than it is in... Um, and, and that the noir stuff is, is more kind of window dressing. But I don't think it succeeds or is very honest as a portrait of grief. Because Nicole Kidman's character is someone who the film wants you to get excited about watching her wreck stuff. It's in the title of the film, (laughs) Destroyer, right? Um, But rather than being an honest movie about, you know, um, a bad person, 
because she's she's basically a bad cop, a bad mother. Um, she she has a bad person. She seems yeah, she's yeah. basically a bad person, but it's okay because she's going after the bad guy, right? Yeah. Um, I find it cheap to just pin this on. Oh, it's okay because she went through some traumatic grief. Because I I don't think that's an I think it's sort of like have, trying to have its cake and eat it too. Like enjoy watching a Cole Kidman wrecking stuff, um, but make her into some kind of Christ figure because she went through some some bad stuff. I you know it it feels cheap to me. It feels like simple pop psychology we often get where everything about a person can be attributed to one flashback ready explosive you know um, event in the past, and we withhold it. And, you know, until the right moment in the narrative to release it, to reveal it. And when it comes, because this narrative template is so familiar um, and it's such an obvious kind of explanation, I don't think there's any big surprises in this movie. But it, as you say, it withholds things like they're the key to everything. If we're going to treat this as a character study, um, let's look at it as a character study. I don't think it's a very good character study for the reason, as alluded to, that the key piece of information that we want to know about a character, the key confirmation of the revelation, happens very late in the piece. We needed to reckon with this much earlier if we were going to empathize with her as a character. But on top of that, um, it isn't really a revelation because everything we essentially need to know about this is is told to us much earlier in the piece. And further, if it is going to be a character-focused drama, we can't just focus on one character. Fairly, we do learn enough about the Culkin character who I feel is a bit of an anachronism. I referred to earlier how it's a noir film. I think she's a classic noir detective in a very 2019 world. We'll return to this more later. But we needed to know more about other characters too. Sebastian Stan, we know next to nothing about him, the secondary character in the film. The one interesting character who we got to know, I think, in the film's far and above best scene, which involved him egging a character to do Russian roulette in the flashback. He's a great character. He's sort of this Bodhi-type figure they want him to be. But we still he get very little to, to know about this fellow. He seem, Yeah, exactly. He seems to be interesting. There's this, this one scene that reveals him to have this kind of power where he's like a Charles Manson-type figure in that scene, basically. But the rest of the movie, he's just a bank robber. And a boring one. He's just a boring bank robber. He's, he's Bodhi in the remake of Point Break, the self-break, the self-serious one, which no one liked and no one should see because it's terrible. Speaking of self-serious, yeah. oh, God. But, uh, yes, this film was self-serious. I, I do agree with that point. Uh, but actually coming back to the other point which is made, I don't think Nicole Kidman's character needed to be empathetic. And I do agree with Glenn that, you know, the film would work without that as well. And I think for the majority of the film, it does work without it. And I actually kind of like that aspect that this film doesn't try to make her empathetic at all. And I'm just like, well, if we, well, if the male flawed noir heroes can get away with not being empathetic, then why can't the female ones too? See, I disagree on that. I think we get to enjoy watching her be a bad person to an extent, but I think towards the end when the movie starts saying, oh, it's just because of this, and really she loves her daughter, and really, you know, she's just a damaged person, um, and it starts treating her like she's she's actually, a, you know, a magical person who's just been fallen upon, you know, bad fate has fallen upon her, and that's not particularly interesting. On top of that, she seemed to be a pretty bad person already in the flashbacks, What's wrong with just making a character study of a bad person? That that that's worked on film before, and I don't Drive. think this movie. Yeah, this film I don't think had the guts to go there. 
I, I think uh, this is why we disagree. I think this film, but the majority of the film, is doing that. It's just doing that. It's only in the last act where it kind of falters and tries to justify or provide some morality, where the most part it is quite an amoral film. It's not making any judgments as to what these characters are. It's just saying these characters are all but kind of going bad back to, people. To what I'm saying earlier, though, it's like it's like the the joy of like you get to watch a bad someone be bad to bad people, and it's okay because they're bad people. Um, you know, because they're worse. And uh, And it worked in the quite confronting scene where she meets up with the person at the very beginning of the film who was recently released from prison. But on the matter of the war, and particularly Men in the Wild, let's go to the classic example, The Maltese Falcon. That film is a classic because of the ending where you can enormously empathize with Sam Spade. Um, Chinatown, certainly. um, It's memorable for the reason, one of the reasons, that the look in Jake Giddy's eyes at a key crux uh, uh, towards the end of the film, um, I feel... These characters are good because we can empathize, and I think they do cause us to empathize with her throughout. But then I think a key revelation towards the end, I think, does undermine that. I'm okay with if if, if it being a character study about someone getting empathized with, or just being a film about bad people doing bad things. This film tried to have it both ways, and I don't think it did it well. I'll I'll go back to the point that you're making about how it's shot and actually why it's doing totally different things. Sometimes trying to be a Nicholas Winding Refn film, which is a very interesting comparison. Thinking, I was thinking of Neon Demon while I was watching it as well. A few shots. And, and, and then other things. I think they just didn't have the budget to make a really interesting look. Yeah, but actually, I did appreciate the fact that they were going for a different kind of look in a generic template as well. So I think I do give it props for this being a more ambitious film, even though it execution wise, it doesn't really execute those things. But still, I really like the ambition in it. It's not just going for a simple generic noir film. The thing. Um the way that they try not to be just a simple generic plot, though, like I think, I think they realize that what they had is really thin. Like this is this is a, just a, an incredibly it's cliched. breadcrumbs. There's no yeah. actual. Let's infer this. It's all let's meet this character and talk to this character. It's an episode of Cold Case, that, that yeah. really terrible show. I think the the breadcrumb way that it's constructed, I think, is a realizing that this isn't that interesting a story. That doesn't generally have that much dramatic tension. So an int- attempt to artificially create that. Um, through stringing things along in the plot. And I think... I'm all for that. I mean, movies are not about plot anyway. Plot is the most boring thing about movies. But this film reneged on plot. Um, A character, without (laughs) spoiling anything, literally brings the evidence of one robbery to another robbery. Yeah, the plot was stupid. Um, There are huge... We aren't really going to have spoilers, but there are massive, massive contrivances. I, I agree that plot is not necessarily the most interesting thing about... Especially this kind of film. Like, I think the Michael Mann comparison comes up because there's a shootout in this clearly modeled after the big one in Heat. And it's actually one, quite well executed. Um, one of the better scenes in the film, I would say. But um, it's the way that this movie tries to get around its uninteresting plot that I found to be even more insulting than the plot. Like, Partly it's the breadcrumbs approach, but also the structure and the way that flashbacks are written into the film. And there's very a little randomly, bit randomly and haphazardly. Yes, very haphazardly and randomly. Like there's a moment near the end, to a big confrontation towards the end where there's a split second flash to an earlier confrontation involving Nicole Kidman's character and someone else. And these two moments actually don't have anything 
in common with each other, apart from its moments where she's about to confront someone. Um, may it and stitching them together like it's making some statement about the character is kind of strange, especially as it comes right at a really climactic moment of the movie. So when it was over, both me and Glenn both said, "What was that about?" There's also some kind of non-linear timeline play with this movie that it's cheap. It's cheap, exactly. It if, doesn't teach us anything. Yeah, that exactly because if um. It's only there to say, ha ha, fooled you on the part of the writers and, uh, you know, make the people who... Okay, I don't want to criticize people who you're enjoy this movie. You make this movie sound more smug have, than it is. We have it's not so much that it's smug; it's that it's stupid. <laughs> like you know, if you're going to do some kind of elaborate timeline trickery, like Memento or whatever, this movie isn't quite on that level, but it tries to pull something on the audience. Then. I think that needs to be for a reason, either as, you know, aesthetically or in in terms of what it says about the character. It doesn't say anything particularly deep about about the character that they do this for, other than this is just how she seems every day, right? Um, You you know, which is not exactly a very dramatic thing to drop in, you know, at, at... Right at a, a extremely crucial point the, of the film, the crucial, the point, crucial of the point of the film. Um, this movie, as it goes on, collapses into cliches that betray the supposedly gritty toughness that it's going for, and, and reveals it to be quite sentimental and quite cheap. There's one particular cliche we've seen in the story beat everywhere involving a revelation about a member of her family, and it's a rather obvious one. They could have let just reveal itself, but they tell us and then lose a actual not bad reveal that could have happened and clearly was written into the script and one border could have survived on its own. Yeah. It's very lazy storytelling. I'd like to touch more on uh, what we were talking about in terms of the style of the film and how it was shot. Um, I don't think it's a matter of low budget. You look at the way, what makes noir great is that Regardless of the time of day, there is a clear palette. You have a sense of being in one environment. Chinatown did this perfectly. I've read the Maltese Falcon earlier. Neon Demon, a film which is very underrated, did this well. There is one shot, a few shots, including one of the diner, which is straight out of the Neon Demon. There's um, moments under a bridge, which are straight out of every dark noir film. There are moments of literal blinding light, as intended, which it's are from something else that entirely. Directed. It's it, it's several types of noir. You have to have a consistent storytelling approach, a consistent visual approach. There is no consistent visual approach here. They throw everything at it and hope it sticks. And I'm I'm just surprised at you guys because you guys would be, you know, going all gaga about mother or gloss. I'm not or going to go gaga mother about mother had, so consistent, Chris, mother had a consistent specifically, look to it. I'll give that no, no, I'm not, yeah. not just that. I mean, just saying, I think this film is actually... Ambitious, it doesn't really land in execution, but I think we've been no. getting behind ambitious films but not landing but in execution. is this movie is, is actually ambitious? What actually, I think, I think What so. I think this really is, is a movie that wants you to believe it's ambitious by pulling a load of cheap tricks over very thin material. What this film really is, and what I think it would work much better as if it were to just embrace, is a cheap pulp movie. But it's directed. You want this to be Mandy. It's well. It's just, it would just be, tell me, Grace. You it would be better, be right? What the, because how the this film feels? It's like it's trying to turn a bunch of cliches into you know, like this is a a deep excavation, you know, of grief and of of. But really, it's just actressing melodrama 
There's so many Oscar shots of Nicole but Kidman, Nicole- whose makeup is awful, by the way. I love Nicole Kidman. She's not good in this film. She didn't. Need, she, I don't think she needed the makeup for it. But no, she Nic- didn't. Nicole she Kidman didn't. is best at actressing melodrama. That's what she does. And you know, when I go into watch a Nicole Kidman movie, that's what I expect from her. I don't expect when I went to watch Lion, which I hated, I still expected that from her, and she delivered. Okay. Actressing melodrama is her forte. All right, let's look at Lion. Let's look at the others. Let's look at Strangerland. All these films where she is playing dramatic roles, but she is surrounded by dramatic people who are magic. Not not not, not talking about in terms of talent, but in terms of the style. She is the uh, she is straight out of a 60s, 70s noir, um, rounding around town, a law unto herself. She is a character, this is 2019, she is a law, she is a character wholly distinct from everyone else in the film. There's a scene where she goes into a club and berates her daughter and her terrible boyfriend. And this- But he was terrible. And uh, that's, I'm not, not getting into that. My point is that they all looked at her, whether it was the bouncer or the people in the club, to completely nonplussed, as the audience would. She didn't belong, and not just in terms of like, what are you doing here? But her character doesn't she's belong in the setting. Film. She's from a different <laughs> film. She's from a different film. She has like this could this could have been better if they'd lead into the pulpy aesthetic, if it would lead into the comedy, but you couldn't do because it was so dour in so many parts. Like or Marvin Sin City, was that his name? The guy with the massive jaw. Just like embrace that oh. there's this weird character going. <laughs> I, I, I was, was going to yeah. say like yeah. uh, or, or, the, or the Nicolas Cage yeah. Spider Man in uh, Into the Spider Verse. I, I would call him a low budget Thanos uh, with, with the yeah, jaw. Fair, fair. Yeah. 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 But actually, look, I'm really surprised that you guys are just in the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm really feeling lonely out here because I really think this film is not as dishonest as you guys think it is. So yeah, it's it's. I think it's lazy. I think it's lazy. lazy I think it's inconsistent, and I think there is no sense of a finite creative direction which went into it. I don't, th- I don't think at any. I don't think any. Of the I actors think. I think essentially went- it says nothing and it does nothing new while acting as though it deserves praise for that. Like it. it I, I don't. Know, like I don't it, think it, it is. I don't think the score like, is awful. By the way, the way that it's constantly it's recurring. Yeah, it's it's recurring. It's really shrill, and it's constantly again trying to create the sense of like this is really foreboding. This is really important. When it's always a pitch higher than the film is actually landing. You want a sense of a score that does this well. Look at Star Trek Into Darkness or Childhood of a Leader. Similar Child tempos, Leader, yes. oh, but yeah. scores that actually work well and apply well to the setting. Speaking of Childhood of a Leader, R.I.P. Scott Walker, who composed the yes. score. He died very recently. He oh, also wow, composed yeah. a very good score yeah. for Vox Lux. He's a, a legendary musician apart from his recent score work, but that's his direct relevance to the wow, show. And yeah, yeah. Just, yeah just hit in- me. Thanks. thanks incredible, incredible music in both of those films. Yes. Um, one, I think one other thing to touch with on this film is we've talked about the dissonant styles, but the very end, the last few minutes, which goes into full, dry, Nicholas Winding reference, cerebral territory, symbolic territory, which it w- actually lacks symbolic territory, which wasn't present anywhere else throughout the film. I'm not sure if this was something they decided the to do on the day. Man, man, like... Karen Kusama could not pull that off in this film. It's yeah, so this film is one- not symbolic of anything. But, I but agree. at the Even end, I can, but, I can agree yeah, with that. But at the end, it, it suddenly goes for that, and it, it's again when we're talking about this lack of cohesive direction, a break from the style of everything that's come before that. That you know lands with a thud because nothing is there to prepare you for that. It's interesting how that and the invitation to completely different films. We talked last week in the context of us how the invitation takes a huge leap, like us does in its later stages, and it's curious that we see something not dissimilar in this film. This film, aside from the Toby Cabell scene I referred to earlier and the Nicole Kidman Sebastian Stan's performances, I wish we'd had more Sebastian Stan at this. We're going to really like him. Really, had no redeeming features for me. Wow. Um. I mean, look. 
I would still say to our listeners, give this film a shot. It's it's still going for other things that most noir films do not even try for. It's it's going for things. It doesn't land them precisely. There are a lot of plot issues. I do agree with that. But still, I think it's more interesting in what it's trying to do. And I think I've always been a big fan of promoting films which try to do something rather than which just try to be, you know, rehashing templates. I think that's exactly what this is doing, but I guess you guys can be the judge. Exactly. So yeah. th- that is wow, the... our first fight <laughs> in, in <laughs> ages, actually. Actually, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel so bad being lonely, but yeah, it's, it's congratulations, guys. We are officially Film Fight Club again. Officially Film Fight Club. And that was Destroyer. It is in cinemas now. Um, so if you do like films that are noir with the Cole Kidman, recommend Strangerland. It came out a few years ago at the Sydney Film Festival. Really underrated, really underseen. The next thing we are talking about is Angus Varda, who, as we discussed earlier in this program, after a, I think phenomenal is an understatement, a phenomenal film career beyond that, passed away earlier this week. What's surprising about Agnes Varda's death, which actually hit me pretty hard, even though she was 90 years old, so it shouldn't have come as so much of a surprise, but it did, is because she is I think at the point she died, she was at a high point of fame and recognition. Um, she just premiered a new retrospective work, a documentary on her creative process and the films she's made and her sources of inspiration that premiered at the Berlin Film Festival last month. She'd been touring the world and giving masterclass lectures. She um, was seen at the Oscars getting recognition that, of course, came um, after none of her actual films were recognized with the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017. Um, She also premiered that year Faces Places, which was a beautiful documentary that landed her a lot of respect um, once again. So she was suddenly very visible and prominent again and did not seem 90 years old. She was so full of life and so full of energy. So it it came as a huge surprise um, for uh, for her to be gone, and really, I think this leaves us with um, only Jean Luc Godard of the French New Wave filmmakers. So it it feels like that era of filmmaking is slipping away. Yeah, my my first introduction to Varda was through Faces Places, which I saw at the Sydney Film Festival when it premiered. Uh, Melbourne, actually, uh, I think one of the ones uh, with Louise. We saw, I think. Uh, yeah, that was the year before last. Yeah, and uh, I, I was just so in love with her being in love with films. I think that is something that you got across from personality that she just loved filmmaking. She loved the camera work. She loved being in front of films, and I think it's just fascinating to see. And there was a scene in that film where she wants to go and see Godard, and Godard is just being, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, just a horrible yep. person. Uh, so, <laughs> which kind of introduced me to how Godard would be in real life as well, and the image book. So I think it's it's almost a throwback to what kind of the French New Wave, which people don't realize what it did what, and what, what it meant. What Vada did is, um, or was revolutionary at the time. She essentially was a a true independent. She entered the scene um, with almost no exposure to cinema. She'd barely seen any films in her life. Um, Apparently, when she made her first film, she'd seen about 30 films. Uh, She came from the world of photography, but she had an intrinsic sense of how to construct a film narrative and how to use the camera. Um, She sought inspiration from outside of cinema. She later went on to become, of course, a huge cinephile, but um, she carried forth, I think, the spirit, which is trying to make films in different ways. Um, She uh, went on to make one of my absolute favorite films. Whenever I'm asked to make a top 10 list, 
Um, the films fluctuate, but one film that always makes it in is her film from 1962, Cleo from 5 to 7, which is my favorite French New Wave film. Um, wow. It, it's a completely... Um, God, I don't I don't know where to, to start with Cleo from 5 to 7, but it reveals something that runs through all of Agnes Varda's films from her first one, Le Point Court, um, right through to the final uh, film, Faces Places, not counting this this new documentary on herself and her work, um, which is, it's a bit of a cliche to say this about artists when they die, but that she was very, very interested in people. But in a way, unlike other, because horse, she always tried to incorporate uh, the world outside of her mind in her work. The first film, La Point Court, um, she credited to the people of that town and did a lot of improvisation and development of the story with the, the residents. Faces Places is about the um, people uh, you know, of the towns that she passes through and tries again to incorporate them into her process. And we see that again in Cleo from 5 to 7. Um, it's a movie about exploring a character's mind, but also exploring the world outside a character's mind. The use of the camera to suggest this is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I think she had an incredible grasp of cinema, that, but she was using it not just for um, self-indulgence, but to bring the image to people who are underrepresented in, in cinema, people at the margins of society, or even people that we might take their interior life for granted. She was a person of extraordinary empathy, and I think that came through in her public appearances as well, that she was such a warm presence and that she had time for everyone. I wish more people would discover her work, and I think uh, she has a lot to give, and her cinema has a lot to give, so I wish more people can discover her work if they haven't already. Uh, please do. Uh, please do. Um, I know one screening that is happening on, I think it's next Sunday at the Golden Age, is Faces Places. Mm. So I'm going to be popping along to that because I myself haven't seen it. It's, it's a really, really warm film. Um, it, all of her documentaries are worth checking out. The Gleaners and I is, oh, wow. um, is yeah, yeah, a, a, another film that's about other people and brings herself into it in a way that isn't indulgent. She really had a way of merging life and art as Martin Scorsese said, unlike uh, about her on her passing, unlike anyone else. So please do check out the filmography of Agnes Varda, Destroyers and Cinemas Now. We will be back next week with one of our retrospective episodes going back 20 years to review newly released films, The Matrix, 10 Things Ahead About You, and Cruel Intentions. Which are in and cinemas, cinemas Now, in cinemas guys. Now. Go, go check them out. This has been Chris Evans, Glenn Falcon, Sniper, Rattner Rue. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Good night. Bye, guys.